Well, our New Covenant reading is taken once again from the sixth chapter of Matthew. And I'll read a little bit longer portion. I alluded to it uh, this morning from the previous sermons. We'll begin with verse 5 and we'll read through verse 14. Hear then the word of God. Matthew 6, beginning with verse 5. And when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word may add his blessing to it. Well, as we begin this evening, we'll look at the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. This morning, we looked at that first petition, hallowed be thy name, Lord, sanctify your name in all the earth. That ought to be the priority in our prayer, the interests of God. This continues the interests of God. Uh, Before I get more into what I mentioned uh, today, uh, the man at the Westminster Assembly uh, whose prayer inspired the uh, question and answer to the Shorter Catechism, I remembered this afternoon his name. Isn't that the way it is? George Gillespie uh, was the commissioner, uh, one of the youngest men at the Assembly, and uh, uh, he was uh, very influential at the Assembly. If you ever have opportunity to read about George Gillespie, he's a fascinating man. But uh, this morning we pointed out God's interest should have the priority in prayer. Uh, To that end then, this kind of expands upon that when we look at the second uh, commandment, or second petition, thy kingdom come. This is one of the ways in which God makes his name great and hallowed and sanctified As we pray that God's name would be hallowed, we pray that his rule and his reign would be extended. And we would look at this then, and this should be another of those emphases with regard to the interests of God. God is a great king, and he has a kingdom, and we are members and citizens of that kingdom And as members and citizens of the kingdom and as members of the body of Christ, we are to be praying that God would extend his kingdom in the earth. 
Now, when we talk about the kingdom of God, I would first like to begin with, we need to understand what the kingdom of God is. And it can be looked at in a couple of different ways. We can understand the kingdom of God as his providential government of all creation. We know that God does whatever he pleases among the sons of men. He does whatever he pleases on the earth. Every atom is at his command. There is no atom or subatomic particle uh, that is doing anything apart from the direct direction of Almighty God. This boggles. I, I have to confess to you, when I was younger, I fought like a deist. A deist was one who said God established all the, the, the rules or the laws of the, the universe, the physical laws, like uh, the, illustra- the old illustration is like the clockmaker who makes the clock to function, winds it up, and everything just functions uh, according to those, uh, th- those laws. And indeed, there are, phys- we call them physical laws of the universe. Uh, but what you need to understand is that all of those things that we call the laws of nature are simply the habits of God. They're the habits of God. Every molecule, every atom is under the direct direction of Almighty God. Now, isn't that astounding? Uh, My thoughts of God were way too small. God governs everything. And we'll see that. Uh, We will see that uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is uh, the creator with the Father, in him, everything holds together. And so as you think about these things, God governs everything. I, I don't think that's what this is, because in that sense, the kingdom of God has always been. But it is God's government. God actively governs all his creatures and all their actions. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. We mentioned this morning the rising of the sun, the going down thereof. That, that, that's God's habit. That's the way he operates. The sun is where it is and it rises in the west, in the east and sets in the west uh, because God makes it so. And so as you go inward and inward and inward, the smallest particles obey his decrees. And as you go outward and outward and outward, God is governing all the heavenly bodies. He calls them all by name. I I remember a number of years ago going to a conference. There was a a literal rocket science work for NASA who spoke at this conference. And um, at that point in time, um, the Hubble telescope was, was relatively new. And uh, he was showing us slides of pictures from the Hubble telescope. And uh, he was just pointing out, he he said, you see all of these, he says, those aren't stars, those are galaxies. Thousands and thousands and thousands and millions and millions of galaxies. And he says, and what I'm showing you here, he says, if you were to hold up your thumb to the heavens, that's what's contained in your thumbnail. God calls them all by name. They serve a great God. They serve a great God. And is anything too hard for him? 
You see, God actively governs all his creatures and all their actions. But in this sense, the kingdom of God has always been and always will be. So when the Lord teaches us to say, thy kingdom come, he's not merely speaking about his providential government of all creation, though certainly that is a facet of it. The kingdom of God can be understood generally in terms of God's gracious reign over men. In that sense, uh, he's talking about uh, the, the kingdom of God whereby men who are regenerated by the power of the Spirit and brought into submission to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ who confess him as Lord and Savior and are ruled by him, men who acknowledge his gracious reign. The concept of a kingdom requires that God is a king, and he is our king. Jesus was declared to be the king of the Jews, but he was much more than the king of the Jews. He was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so God's kingdom is identified by the rule of his grace, by the power of his spirit, as he comes and he leads us in righteousness and we follow in his train. So when we pray for the kingdom of God in the Lord's Prayer, what we are praying for is the fullness of the messianic kingdom of God, Messiah. You know Jesus was the Messiah, and you probably know that Messiah means anointed one. In the Old Covenant, uh, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed. And the New Covenant name or the New Covenant word Christ is the Greek word for the Old Covenant, Messiah. Jesus Christ is Yesu Messiah or Joshua Messiah. And so it is the rule of Christ in the fullness of time, that, that fullness to which the Old Covenant people looked when their king would come. Jesus was the king. And so when he entered on the colt, the foal of a donkey, uh, he was not coming in pomp and circumstance. He was coming as a king, meek and lowly, to bring peace to his people. It was a glorious thing, and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the kingdom of God. We pray for the fullness of the kingdom of God. It is manifest in his rule in the lives of individuals, those who confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. You are members of the messianic kingdom because you believe that Jesus is the Christ and that God has raised him from the dead. And you have committed your life to serve him all the days of your life. And he has dedicated himself to save you from your sins and to bring you into everlasting glory, to the glory of his Father. That's the kingdom of God. It is manifest in his rule over groups of people as well. We pray that Christ will be the head of families, and we want that. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. God is to govern our families. Christ is to rule in our families. We are to acknowledge him as the Lord of our families. We are to order our lives in accordance with his word. Uh, it's not very popular uh, in our day. Everyone wants an egalitarian system, but families are ordered according 
to a hierarchy. Not that men are more important or of more value than women. It's simply that God orders us, and we, in submission to him, recognize that men are heads of families. They're heads of their wives, and that's not a bad thing. We care for you. We love you, even as Christ loved the church. And wives should be subject to their husband because this is the order that God, and there's safety in that, and there's glory. And I want to say to you, to you women, there is, uh, there, there is no higher calling uh, than, uh, than for you to, uh, to, 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 uh, to, to raise your children, the influence that you have uh, on, the, on the world in the, in the raising of children is remarkable. It's in, incredible. And it is something that should not be, it is despised in our, in our world, but it is a tremendous calling and we're, we're grateful for you. And then, of course, parents are to be the rulers of their children as well. Christ is the head of the church. He's been given as head over all things for the church. He is the head of the church. He rules and reigns in the church. But Christ is also the Lord of the nations. And Jeremiah 12, 17 says, But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so when we pray, Thy kingdom come, we are praying that He would rule us as individuals, that He would rule our families, that He would rule our churches, that he'd rule our communities, indeed, that he'd rule our world. Don't you long to have the rule of Christ in your life and in your community? Now stop and think what it would be like if all of greater Greenville was worshiping and serving the Lord Jesus Christ and not themselves. Stop and think what it would be like if the law of God was practiced by every individual or the bulk of the individual's in the state of Tennessee. Stop and think what it would be like if the United States proclaimed Jesus as Lord and sought to serve him in the United States and in the world as well. There was a time when the United States exported the gospel, and I long for that time again. I want the Lord Jesus Christ to be known in the world. He's the head of the nations. For after all, 1 Corinthians Chapter 15 tells us that he must reign until every enemy is put under his footstool. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. It's manifest then in this way, and it will be consummated at Christ's second coming. Everything that I've said to you about individuals and families and churches and communities, uh, we know that they're is an imperfect submission to the will of God. But when Jesus comes to receive us to himself, all rebellion, all inconsistency, all distance, all estrangement will be done away with. When he comes at the end of history, Jesus will turn the kingdom over to the Father and God will be all in all. And I just, uh, I just think again, uh, one of the things that the Lord has done for us, gratefully he did it early in my ministry, he gave me a, a great love for the rule of Christ, and that translates into a great love for the law of God. And I've told people 
many times the, the law of God is, uh, is a glorious thing. We're not saved by the keeping of the law. Understand that. Hear me. We're not saved by keeping the law of God. We are saved for the keeping of the law of God. And I've said to my congregation on many occasions, if you don't like the law of God, then you're going to be miserable in heaven. Because in heaven, God's law will be kept perfectly without any blemish. And I long for more of that in my life and the life of the church and the life of men around me. I long for men to be ruled by the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we pray for. We pray for the rule of Christ in the world. But understand what we mean by the coming of the kingdom then. What is it to say, thy kingdom come? We've looked at what the kingdom is. Well, what do we mean by thy kingdom come? And I want you, and, uh, I want you to listen carefully. We do not pray merely for a future. In fact, I'm going to say we don't pray at all for a future inauguration. Listen to that word, inauguration, beginning of this messianic reign. The reason that I say that is because Scripture is very clear that God's kingdom was initiated at Christ's first advent. Christ came as king. He is the king. And I'm going to explain that to you in several ways. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 4.4 says that Jesus came at the fullness of the time. In Matthew 12, 28, after he had cast out the demons and was accused by casting them out by the power of the devil, he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see, the kingdom of God will be consummated on the last day, but the kingdom of God was inaugurated with the advent, the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was, after all, David's greater son at birth. Throughout the scriptures, you see the people acknowledging him. What do they call him? Son of David. Have mercy. Now, you have to understand that has a lot of history. Son of David refers to the promised Messiah. God promised David that he would never lack a king to sit on his kingdom. Well, when Jesus came, there was no son of David sitting on the throne. Jesus was the son of David, the promised Messiah. His life and ministry demonstrated his government over a fallen world. The demons could not resist him. Death was subject to him. He brought life. All the miseries of this life were subject to him. He could speak and the winds and the waves would obey him so that the disciples said, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him. It could not be any other than the God-man, right? Demonstrating that he was the king. His resurrection manifested his rule over death and hell. In the death of Christ, there was the death of death. And he inaugurated life. And his ascension inaugurated his conquest. I want to show you very quickly in Psalm 110, one of the most quoted, I think the most quoted psalm 
in the new covenant. <clears throat> he reads, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, when did Jesus begin to sit at God's right hand? At the resurrection, certainly, but more particularly at the ascension. Uh, turn with me real quickly in your Bible and turn to Daniel 7. And I'm not, uh, I do not want to diminish the second coming of Christ, but I want to put this in perspective that when we pray your kingdom come, we are not asking God to inaugurate his kingdom. It already has. But look at Daniel chapter 7, <clears throat> verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. <clears throat> the court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now notice this. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And we often look at that and we say, well, that just has to be the second coming of Christ. He's coming with the clouds. But we often stop reading there. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now, what's he referring to? When did Jesus get presented to the Ancient of Days in his ascension? And notice what happens. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You see, the right hand of the Father is the place of authority. Just like Daniel was made the prefect over the province of Babylon. And like Joseph was made the ruler of Egypt under Pharaoh, God has given to the Lord Jesus the rule and reign of his kingdom. It was initiated at Christ's first advent and he has ascended, he sits at right at God's right hand until every enemy be made a footstool for his feet. It was announced by John and the Lord Jesus himself. Matthew 3, 1 through 3. <coughs> John preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1, 15. Now after John had been taken into captivity, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 9, 1, and Jesus was saying to them, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You see, Jesus and the disciples 
recognized the kingdom of God had come with his first advent. It was proclaimed by the apostles as having been established. In Acts, it says, they went about preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. They were preaching the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 10.11, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. The last days began with Christ's first advent. We're living the last days as Christ is establishing his kingdom. So we're not praying for a future inauguration of the kingdom. What are we praying for? We are praying that God's messianic kingdom will grow to maturity. I'm going to use an illustration. I don't know how good of an illustration it is. I just think about how can I, how can I illustrate this? Well, we're, we are praying for, for God's kingdom to grow to maturity in time and history, but also we are praying that it will grow in history until the time of consummation when it's completed. And I, the illustration that I wanted, wanted to use is, is just like human beings. When you and I were conceived in our mother's womb, we were in principle everything that we would ever be. Right? We were... I was, although I wasn't named at the time, I was Brent Bradley when I was conceived. When I was born, I was an infant. I looked a lot different then, <laughs> but I was me. When I was a child, I was grown a bit, wasn't I? But I was still me. When I was a youth, I was me when I was newly married, started a family. There was an expansion of my gifts and influence and abilities, but I was me. And uh, now I'm 75 years old, and I hope I'm a little wiser and more godly than I was when I was a child. I think I am. You see, I've grown. God has heard my prayers. I've prayed for the kingdom of God. I am, I am more like the Lord Jesus Christ today than I was 10 years ago. Now, the way God works with us as individuals is the way he works with institutions and communities as well. And so Jesus used the illustration of the mustard seed. It's small, <coughs> insignificant, planted, but over time it grows and becomes a giant tree in which the birds of the heavens dwell. And if you understand the old covenant imagery there, when the Lord speaks about the birds of the heavens coming to dwell in the tree, he's speaking about the nations coming under the shade of the kingdom of God. And that's the illustration that Jesus uses. Or it's like a measure of leaven, that if you put it into a lump of dough, it works quietly and unseen until it permeates and leavens the whole loaf. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It doesn't come full bone. It comes 
gradually over time and it grows. And what God wants us to pray for is he wants us to pray that the kingdom of God would grow to maturity in space and time, culminating in the consummation with the coming of Christ. That's what we pray for. Well, what are some of the particulars that we pray for? And uh, I want to uh, I want to read you the children's version of what we pray for. That's the shorter catechism. And then I want you to read the adult version, the one that I'm supposed to memorize, which I have trouble with the shorter. So uh, just goes to show you. But listen, listen to what the Westminster Divines gave to children to learn about the, the, the Lord's Prayer and the Kingdom of God. Question 102. What do we pray for in the second petition? In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and the kingdom of glory may be hastened. You see, space, time, and history, and consummation. We are praying for the maturity of God's kingdom. Now, listen to what you and I are supposed to be memorizing. Westminster Confession, Larger Catechism, question 191. What do we pray for in the second petition? Answer. In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, Acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances purged from corruption, countenanced and maintenanced by the sole magistrate, and the ordinance of Christ may be purely dispensed, made effectual to the converting of those that are yet in their sins, and the confirming, comforting, and building up of those that are already converted, that Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of his second coming and our reigning with him forever, and that he would be pleased to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best conduce to these ends. You got that? <laughs> and the previous 190 were similar. Uh, so... And Here's the challenge. Those of you who are young, start memorizing the larger catechism. It will be great. Actually, the shorter catechism. But did you see the, the breadth of what we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? And so I want to ask you the question. Do you pray when you pray, thy kingdom come, do you recognize that you are to be praying for the destruction of Satan's kingdom? You're to pray that Idolatry may be banished from the face of the earth. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so Moses prayed when the ark set out before them and when the pillar of cloud and fire went before them, cried out, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let all those who hate you flee before. You see, we pray for the destruction of Satan and his kingdom. He put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and promised the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. 
And when the Apostle Paul writes his last chapter to the Roman believers, he says, and Satan, and but God will crush Satan under your feet not many days hence. You pray for the defeat of Satan in all of his manifestations. That God will expose and destroy idolatry and false religion. You know, we live and we need to get over it. We have adopted much of the uh, the world system in our thinking, we've adopted this notion of, of religious pluralism, that, uh, that this is, uh, no, we, we don't pray for religious pluralism. Now, we do, not, uh, we do not believe in persecuting those who are not believers. We don't believe in that. In fact, that is forbidden scripture. But we pray that the Christian faith will permeate the earth and that Muslims and Hindus and atheists and all other religious aspects will bow the need, knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that all of the talk about religious pluralism and toleration, every religion is tolerated except one, right? The Christian faith is the one that's not tolerated. Why? Because it's the one true religion and Satan will not tolerate the truth. He will tolerate error. He will tolerate idolatry. He will promote it, but he will not tolerate truth. And so we pray that truth will prevail. Understand that culture is the expression of religion. And what pluralism is, if you want to put religious terms, it's polytheism, many gods. Christians are not to be polytheists or monotheists, one God in three persons. We pray that God would remove his enemies from all seats of influence. We pray that our families would be led by Christ. We pray that churches would be led by Christ. We you know, the church has become an, an instrument of, uh, of, of untruth in many places. The, the gold has become dim, much like Israel and, and Judah in the days of Christ. The greatest persecution early in the early days of the Christian faith was what? The established church, Judaism. The greatest enemies of the gospel were the leaders of the old covenant church. Educational facilities, media outlets, and the civil magistrate. I was reading again in Proverbs this morning in my regular meeting, and he said it's not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a, for a slave to rule over princes. Well, you want to know something? Those who are not servants of the Lord Jesus Christ are slaves of sin, and it's not fitting that slaves of sin should rule over the princes of Judah. That's you and me. We're sons of the king. We live in a topsy-turvy world, but that's what Jesus came to do. He came to set it right. It's not fitting. What is fitting is for Jesus to rule over his princes and princesses. That is fitting. We pray for the success of the gospel, that God will convert men by his saving grace and that God will sanctify his people. Um, I was thinking again of something that my oldest daughter, my, my oldest daughter is, uh, uh, has always been a, 
a person of, of great faith. I could tell you story after story. And she is a, a, a godly woman of prayer. The Lord has given them 11 children. And I can remember, um, I, I can remember her being concerned for one of her, one of her children. Um, all of her children were, uh, were confessing Christ and were, uh, were walking in observable obedience. And I remember her talking to me and uh, she was in tears because she was concerned about this one child. And you know what her prayer was? Lord, 10 is not enough. 10 is not enough. Not a great prayer. 10 is not enough. And that's the way we ought to be. We look at our, our congregation and we look at our membership and we say, it's not enough, Lord. We want more. We want more in our family. We want more in our family. And it's not, not for us, not unto us, O Lord, but for your name, O Lord. By the way, God answered that prayer. All of our children are walking with the Lord. And that's a great blessing. It's nothing, it's what he has done. But we pray that God's kingdom would come in our families, that he would convert us by his grace, that he would sanctify his people and build us up in the faith. The Apostle Paul prayed for the Colossian believers. He said, and so since the day that I heard it, that I have not ceased to pray for you, asking that God would fill you with the knowledge of his will, And I'm going to have a senior moment that he'd fill you with the knowledge of his will so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing in his sight, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I pray that you may be filled, that you may be filled with, with power according to his glorious might for all endurance with patience and joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the, chains, of the saints in light. You see how Paul is praying there? He prayed that we might increase in the knowledge, in the, in the, in the, in the knowledge of his will. We might increase in the knowledge of God. You know what the increase of the knowledge of God is? It's an increase in our experience of salvation. For this is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what we want. We want to increase in the knowledge of his will and the knowledge of God himself and the experience of eternal life. And we pray for God's rule over every human institution. We ask God to subdue men under his law. We pray that we will embrace God's law. One of the things that uh, I remember years ago, there was, a, uh, there was an effort to have uh, the Ten Commandments posted outside the courthouse in Sullivan County. And it was a great... Uh, and. Uh, and by the way, I'm I'm all for the uh, I'm all for the the Ten Commandments being posted. I think it would be be a good thing. But one of the things I asked this this woman um, because she was going to a uh, a church, I said, you know, it's a strange thing that here you are actively trying to get the Ten Commandments posted outside the courthouse in Sullivan County, but the church abandoned the Ten Commandments a long time ago. Why do you want it at the courthouse when it's not in your church? See, we want it in the church. We want it in our lives. And we want it at the courthouse. We want it in the state house. We want it everywhere. We want God to give the nations to the Lord Jesus Christ. As I mentioned this morning, ask of me, and I will give you the nations for its inheritance. When God subdues kingdoms, remember that 
preaching is the instrument for the extending of the kingdom. The kingdom of God comes gradually rather than cataclysmically. What I mean by that, it isn't a, a sudden, full-blown thing. It is Jesus taught everything that it's gradual, just like that baby grows to adulthood, like the stone cut without hands that crushes the kingdoms, the empires of the world. And what does it do? It fills all the earth. That's what Jesus is doing today. And that's what we pray for. It's persuasive, not coercive. A lot of people object to this idea but you see it is the preaching of the gospel. Jesus did not bruise a broken, did not break a bruised reed, and he did not quench a smoking flax. But he changed the hearts of men in gentleness and patience. And it comes spiritually, not carnally, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual for the pulling down of strongholds. That's what we pray for. In fact, we pray for that which Isaiah spoke. We pray for the time when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And you say, well, that's impossible. It's impossible for you and me, but it's not impossible with God. We pray that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth. The water. I, I hope I stir you up. Now, you may disagree with my particular view of these things, and that's okay, but I want you to think about it. I want you to take seriously what God promises. And I want to show you that I am not one that is alone in this. I found this a number of years ago, and it struck me. I think it's a good admonition. This is from the treasury of David. And of course, that was by Charles Haddon Spurgeon in his exposition of Psalm 86 and verse 9. Psalm 86 and verse 9 says, All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship you, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. You hear what David was expecting? All nations that you have made shall come and worship you, O Lord and shall glorify your name. Writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's what David expected. All nations. What nations has God not made? It's a question. Think about it. What nations has God not made? Now listen to what Spurgeon wrote about that. He may be wrong, and I may be wrong, but this is what he wrote. David was not a believer in the theory that the world will grow worse and worse and that the dispensation will wind up with general darkness and idolatry. Earth's sun is to go down amid tenfold night if some of our prophetic brethren would be believed. Not so do we expect, but we look for a day when the dwellers in all lands shall learn righteousness, shall trust in the Savior, shall worship Thee alone, O God and shall glorify thy name. The modern notion has greatly damped the zeal of the church for missions. And the sooner it is shown to be unscriptural, the better for the cause of God. It neither consorts with prophecy, honors God, nor inspires the church with ardor. Far hence be it driven. 
I want you to have a view for what God is doing when you pray, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. And pray it with a new realization and wait on the Lord. Because after all, is it not he who said with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ, unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and of the increase of his government and of his peace, there shall be no end. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will enlarge our hearts and give us greater expectations and that you will indeed show us your steadfast love and grant us your salvation. Make your name known and will you bring it about, Lord? May, we may not see it. We pray that our descendants will see that time when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think before we sing, we're going to administer the Lord's Supper. Is that okay? Okay. We will, we will do that. Again, uh, uh, your, your pastor forgot to put it in the evening bulletin, the order. And he said, whatever you do, don't forget to administer the Lord's Supper. So I'm trying not to forget. Okay. So uh, we will... Uh, we will do that then let's uh, let's go ahead and let's uh, let's come